You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome all you wiretappers out there. Back here in the studio of Gangland Wire, as you can see by the badge on the plaque and my uh, plaque from the FBI, from my friends at the FBI behind me. I've got Jeffrey Sussman on the uh, Zoom here. He was on the show before. We talked about Greg Scarpa from his book, Big Apple Gangsters. He's a prolific author from New York City, and he has uh, several books on boxing, has a real interest in boxing. And so I've always been interested in this, the mob and the boxing. It's kind of out of my childhood in the 50s and 60s. That was like a really commonly known thing that fights were being fixed. And the mob had back east, of course, the mob had something to do with it. And so I asked him about doing one on that, and he graciously agreed. So uh, we've got Jeffrey Sussman here. Welcome, Jeffrey. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you again, Gary. So, Jeffrey, first of all, you are a pretty prolific boxer. You've got other books on the sport of boxing. You've got, well, name those books off. You've got one about Rocky Graziano, which is out of my childhood. Yeah, there's one uh, called uh, Rocky Graziano, Fist's Fame and Fortune. And before that, there was a book entitled Max Bear and Barney Ross, Jewish Heroes of Boxing. A lot of people didn't know, for example, from about 1910 to 1941, the Jews were the predominant boxers oh, in the sport. Wow. And then after the Rocky Graziano book, I wrote a book about the boxing and the mob, about how the mob controlled boxing, basically beginning around 1920, certainly up through the Sonny List and Muhammad Ali fights. Interesting. Now, folks, I'll have links to all of his books and his Amazon author page and everything in the show notes, so you can take a look at that. Well, first of all, Jeffrey, let's start talking about how did you get such an interest in boxing? Obviously, you have a big interest in boxing. Well, what happened when I was about 12 years old, I was a skinny little kid, and my father was worried that bigger kids would pick on me. And my father had been an amateur boxer. He grew up in a poor neighborhood in New York, and where being able to box was an important way of being able to defend yourself. So one day he brought home a pair of boxing gloves, a speed bag, a jump rope, and he set everything up in the basement of our house for me, and he gave me some boxing lessons. And after I had mastered that, he signed me up for 10 boxing lessons at a famous boxing gym in New York and called Stillman's Gym, where a lot of famous boxers had trained. And he got a middleweight boxer there. I guess it was around 1957 or so. He paid the man $100 to give me 10 boxing lessons. And I enjoyed it very, very much. At the end, I said to this guy, oh, I'd love to get in the ring and box with someone. And he said, you're crazy, kid. If you get in the ring, you're going to get your brains beaten out. (laughs) And that illusion. But I remember I had a Stillman's Gym T-shirt that they had given me. And I wore that T-shirt until it wore out. My mother couldn't wash it anymore. It just turned to rags. But in addition, when my father was growing up, he had a friend named Abe Simon, who became a heavyweight boxer and became a contender for the heavyweight title. He had knocked out a famous boxer named Jersey Joe Walcott, which made him a contender. And he fought Joe Lewis twice, and I think it was 1940 and 1941. And he lost both times. But it was amazing that he was able to, he lasted 12 rounds with Joe Lewis, which was amazing. And I heard stories about Abe. I met him once. He was an enormous man. He was about six foot six and weighed, I guess, about 275 pounds. A very sweet, very nice man. You look at him, you would be intimidated just by his appearance. But in fact, he was a very kind of gentle giant. 
And anyway, that's where my interest in boxing started. And I remember after I was married the first time, I was living in a section of New York called Forest Hills, Queens. I came out of the subway one night after work, and I was heading towards our apartment. And I saw this man walking a, a little white poodle. And as I got close to him, I recognized him. And it turned out to be Rocky Graziano. Uh, cool. And I went over to him and I said, you know, when I was younger, I read your book, Somebody Up There Likes Me, and I just fell in love with it and became a big fan of yours. And he said, thanks a lot. And we chatted for a few minutes. And then he said he had to get the dog upstairs to feed it. Otherwise, the dog was going to take a bite out of his ankle. (laughs) (laughs) And it amused me that here was this, you know, really tough guy with a little puff ball of a dog. Really? The two didn't seem to go together. But it was very amusing. (laughs) Well, Jeffrey, let's talk a little bit about some of the stuff, some of the situations you go to in your book. First one I found kind of fascinating. We go all the way back to Arnold Rothstein and the Black Sox scandal and a man named Abe Axtell. Tell us about that a little bit. Well, Abe Attell had been a featherweight boxing champion from 1906 to 1912. He was known as the Little Hebrew. He was a slight man, very tough, and he had spectacular speed in the ring, and he was able to knock out one opponent after another. And after his boxing career, was befriended by Arnold Rothstein, who was a really the, the founder of organized crime in America. And Rothstein had used him in the 1919 World Series to pay off what they called the Black Sox. And Abe Attell, even though he was a little person, he was able to intimidate all of these players into accepting cash in order to throw the World Series. Of course, they paid them an initial sum of money, and then they never paid them the amount of money that they had fully promised to pay them, which is typical of gangsters. That's so typical. I tell you what, they always, I was just doing a story about a gangster that, a safe blower that did something for him here in Kansas City, and they got him to confess, and he was promised $5,000, and they gave him $500 and a couple of old cars, said, well, you can have these cars. (laughs) That's typical of them. But Abe Attell had a, a lot of uh, what you would call chutzpah because there was a trial after the World Series trying to determine who was responsible for bribing these players. And when Abe Attell was called to the trial, he said, you've got the wrong Abe Attell. There's another man named Abe Attell, and he's the guilty one. I had nothing to do with this. And he walked out of the courtroom a free man. They believed him, which is just extraordinary. <laughs> that is <laughs> that is hootspah. <laughs> it really is. It's just amazing. <laughs> so let's talk about so you you have some information there about Jake Lamotta, which is, you know, an immensely well known popular character because of the movie with Robert De Niro and, and so uh, he was accused of throwing a fight, which seems unusual to most people, I think, if knowing about Jake Lamotta. Tell me about that. Well, you know, Jake LaMotta was a very interesting guy. He came from a very poor family in the Bronx, and his father forced him to fight other kids on the street, and then people would throw money at them. And his father was very brutal to him, which is beat him with a stick, uh, chained him to a bed and so forth, which is why Jake grew up being so brutal. And what was interesting, I found, is Jake and Iraqi Graziano met in reform school. Oh, really? And they were roommates in reform school. And Rocky Graziano, who had a terrible temper, said to Jake, you know, if you're going to be a successful boxer, you've got to learn to control your temper. And this was from a man who couldn't control his own temper. (laughs) But a lot of people thought of him. He was so good in the ring that people designated him as the undeclared middleweight champion. And they would never give him a shot at a middleweight title fight. Madison Square Garden, the middleweight fighters and the welterweight fighters were all controlled by a gangster 
named Frankie Carbo. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We did a show on Frankie Carbo. Who had been a killer with Murder Incorporated before he got involved with boxing. And Carbo said, if you want a shot at the middleweight title, you have to sign with me and you'll have to do what I tell you to do. And that taking a couple of dots. And Jay kept refusing. And he had a number of fights and he still couldn't get a middleweight title fight. So finally, he agreed with Carbo that he would fight this guy, Billy Fox, and he would go down and fight. And Carbo agreed to pay him. I forgot what the fee was, but I think it was $100,000, actually. And Lamada was very smart. Since he was going down in the fight, he bet the $100,000 on his opponent to win. <laughs> <laughs> and he made out like a bandit yes, from losing he did. the fight. <laughs> but it was such an obvious fix that everyone in the audience who saw the fight was furious. And Lamada wasn't putting up defense at all. And they were yelling. Fix, fix, or fake, fake. Yeah. And as one sports writer said, it was so obvious that LaMotta took a dive that you could hear the splash around the world. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> I wish I could write a line like that. That's a great one. Yeah, me too. It was a good line. <laughs> well, interesting. Now, more of mob and the boxing. So, uh, you know, let's go back and talk a little bit about Oni Madden and Primo Carnera. I did a show on this, but. Give me your take on these guys. And Oni Madden, of course, was an Irish gangster. He was not connected to the Joyce Bob at all, but he had his own thing. Yeah, Oni Madden arrived when he was a young man with his siblings and his mother. They emigrated from Liverpool, and they wound up in what section of New York that's called Hell's Kitchen, which is on the west side of Manhattan. And when he was a young man, he was a member of a gang called the Gophers. They killed people. They robbed people. He went to prison for a while. And when he got out, he decided to go into various rackets. Some of them were unions. But he also, after Prohibition, he was looking around for a way. He had made a lot of money in Prohibition. And after Prohibition, he was looking for a way to make a lot of money. And he decided that the fight rack offered that if he could fix fights and bet on the outcome that only he knew about, he could make a lot of money. And uh, Primo Carnera had arrived in this country from Italy. He had been a circus strongman. He was probably the largest heavyweight fighter of all times. I think he was six foot seven, but he couldn't really fight to save himself. And yet he kept winning all these fights. And he was a very nice but naive man who believed that he was actually winning these fights. He didn't realize that they were fixed. And Oni Madden eventually pushed out Primo's manager, threatened to kill him, and the manager went back to Europe. And Oni and his cohorts took over the management of Primo Carnera. What was interesting Abe Battelle was still involved in fixing boxing matches and was a friend of Oni Madden. And Oni hired Abe Battelle to teach Primo Carnera how to box so at least he could give the appearance of being a skillful boxer. And he developed some skills, but not enough to really win matches. And he had one fight after another and eventually became the heavyweight champion of the world as a result of a fixed fight. Then it was 1935. He had a fight with Max Baer, and they tried to uh, fix that. But Max Baer had a very tough manager named Ansel Hoffman, and Hoffman wouldn't go along with this. And even though they threatened him, nothing came of it. And Max Baer severely beat Primo Carnera in the title fight. I think he knocked him down 10 times in the course of the fight. At that point, Oni Madden and his cohorts decided that they no longer needed Primo Carnera, that he was a lost cause. He lost the championship, and they abandoned him. Primo Carnera, as a result of that fight, had a broken jaw, several broken ribs, and a broken bone in one of his arms. Even though Max Baer was portrayed in the movie Cinderella Man as a horrible, narcissistic braggart, he wasn't. He was actually a nice guy. 
and he paid all of Primo Carnera's hospital bills. Oh, really? Because the mob wouldn't pay for that. And then once Primo Carnera recovered from this beating, Max Bear got him a job as a professional wrestler. And in wrestling, he was able to win a substantial amount of money because the mob had stolen all of his money when he was a price fighter. He was broke because the mob took everything from him. There were two interesting movies based on him. One was Requiem for a Heavyweight, and the other was The Harder They Fall. Both excellent movies based on the career of Primo Carnera. And then eventually Oni Madden retired to Hot Springs, Arkansas, married the postmaster's daughter, in old age became quite ill. And what a lot of people don't know is that he required around-the-clock nursing, 24-hour nursing. And the person who was his nurse 24 hours a day was Bill Clinton's mother. Oh, really? <laughs> it was Oni Madden's nurse. <laughs> I did not know that. A lot of people didn't know that. <laughs> you know, interesting, like Hot Springs, he removed himself to Hot Springs, I think, uh, maybe on the request of some Italians up there. I can't remember exactly, but the Hot Springs was like the den of iniquity of the Midwest, they, all the way up exactly. to the 70s almost. Even when I was a young man, they talked about, oh, yeah, they have open gambling down there in Hot Springs. Got like a regular casino that's kind of on the down low. Plus, you had horse racing down there. There was a, 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 a Oaklawn was a ba- you know in the in the horse racing circuit that starts down the south in the spring and moves its way north. So it was. <laughs> and when the New York District Attorney issued an indictment against Lucky Luciano, Lucky Luciano hightailed it to Hot Springs and <laughs> yeah. get out there for a year before they were able to extradite him and bring him back to New York. Really, I need to do a whole show on Hot Springs because there's many more <laughs> stories out of Hot Springs. But that one's oh, about Bill Clinton's mother. Amazing. That's a good one. Thank you for that. <laughs> so let's go on into more modern times. Let's wind up a little modern times. You talked about Sonny Liston. There was always some hints that Sonny was, you know, he had a checkered past, raised a poor kid. And one thing all these boxers seem to have in common is they were raised poor. Uh, usually an ethnic minority that was not really going to be accepted into the larger society and given any opportunities. Or not with the Jewish kids, the, you know, Italians and Irish. And so they gravitate to this sport of boxing. It seemed like it's a way out. And then young black men in the more modern times have gone into that. That's exactly right. It's always been a sport, attracted poor people, was a way for them, especially if they didn't have much of an education, a way of being able to make a lot of money very quickly if they were successful at it. Of course, a lot of them weren't very successful and didn't make a lot of money, but the ones who did, it wasn't stolen from them. They were able to do quite well. Sonny Liston is a really sad case. I mean, his father was a sharecropper. His father fathered over 20 children with two different wives. He would beat Sonny mercilessly. And Sonny ran away from home, ran away to Chicago, where his mother had moved away. And he attended school there briefly, I think only until about the sixth grade. And he was such an enormous kid that all the other kids made fun of him. And he was totally illiterate, which made him an object of ridicule in classroom. And as he got a little older, he started running with a gang in Chicago. He was into a lot of robberies. And for some odd reason, he always wore a yellow shirt when he committed these crimes. The police referred to him as the yellow shirt bandit, which also made him very easy to catch. Yeah, it was <laughs> bigger than everybody. Had. The yellow shirt. Great big guy with a yellow shirt. I had a guy once that had a, had bumps, some kind of bumps all over his face. I mean, they were big bumps. It was, we <laughs> called him the bumpy face guy and he was real easy to find. I asked him, I said, dude, why do you like do robberies and stuff where you can see your face and you got those bumps? He just looked at me like, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, you know, some of these people are not the brightest lights in the world. <laughs> but eventually, uh, Sonny wound up in prison. 
and he was befriended by a Catholic priest in prison. And the priest had set up a boxing tournament in the prison, and Sonny did terrifically. Normally, he would knock out someone within a couple of minutes of the first round. And the priest suggested to him that boxing could be an outlet for his anger, and it would give him a profession, something to do when he got out of prison. And he guided him into that and through that. Sonny was establishing a record of knocking out one opponent after another. I mean, he was unstoppable. He also intimidated people. He was a mean SOB. One of the professional boxers whom he faced many years later said the one thing about Sonny, he said, most fighters go into a ring wanting to win the fight. Sonny goes into the ring wanting to kill you. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, it really is intimidating. He said, you know, it scares the bejesus out of you when you're facing this guy in the ring. And he said, you know, and I faced a lot of tough guys, but no one ever liked Sonny Liston. Eventually, the mob moved in. They saw an opportunity here. There was a guy who was in control of the mob in Louisville named John Vitale, bought a large part of Sonny Liston's contract. He shared it with a gambler in Las Vegas named Ash Resnick. The mob got their hooks deeper and deeper into Sonny, including Frankie Carbo. And even when Frankie Carbo was in prison in the early 1960s, he was still issuing orders about uh, Sonny Liston. He seemed to have a head that was made out of it was a natural helmet because when he was a kid, the cops would catch him. They'd hit him over the head with a billy club, and it seemed to hurt the billy club more than it hurt Sonny Liston's head. He had no reaction to it. It was extraordinary. Well, well and, uh, until Muhammad Ali came along, I guess. Well, <laughs> you know, his first big televised fights with Floyd Patterson. And when you saw yeah. the two of them in the ring, Floyd Patterson looked like a kid next to him. Yeah. He was much smaller than Sonny. And yet the entire black community, as well as John Kennedy and Robert Kennedy, wanted Floyd Patterson to win because they thought he would projected a much better image for the black community yeah. than Sonny Liston would, who was a felon, who had a prison record. And yet in the two fights that he had with Floyd Patterson, he knocked him out in both fights in the first round in about two minutes. But those were two of the fastest knockouts in boxing history. Wow. Then he was to have a fight with Muhammad Ali in Florida. Muhammad Ali said that before the fight, he told other people it wasn't well known. He said he was also scared to death of Sonny Liston. He was taller than Sonny. I think Sonny was about 6'1", and Muhammad Ali was 6'3". But even so, when they got into the ring, Muhammad Ali stood up on his tiptoes so that he could look down at Sonny Liston, trying to intimidate. He could play some mind games at Muhammad Ali. Right. (laughs) And Sonny Liston was able to initially land a couple of heavy blows against Ali. But Ali was very fast on his feet, and he was able to evade being punched, and it seemed to confuse Sonny Liston, who was a plotter in the ring. He wasn't known for his speed. He was known for the power of his punches, which arrived like uh, cement blocks. And then, I think it was around the fourth or fifth round, Sonny came out of his corner, uh, jabbed Ali, who was then known as, still then known as Cassius Clay, hit him in the face a couple of times, and either Sonny or Sonny's manager had put some liniment on Sonny's gloves, and it got into Ali's eyes, and he couldn't see. So he just kept dancing around, trying to avoid Sonny. You know, he would hear Sonny breathing as he got close to him, and as soon as he would hear his breath, he would back away. And then he would hold his arm out, straight arm, his left arm, hoping that that would keep Sonny Liston away from him. And by the time he returned to his corner, he said to his corner man, You've got to stop the fight. I can't see. And the cornerman said, we can't stop it because if we stop it, this this is your only chance to get the heavyweight title. And if you resign from it right at this point, you may never get a second shot. Put his pinky finger in the corner of Ali's left eye and then touched his own eye and it stung and it burned. So he realized that they had put something into Ali's eyes. 
So he kept using water to try to wash out Ali's eyes. And it was interesting because Ali was associated with the black Muslims at that time. And they thought that the manager was trying to do something to Ali in his corner. And they came to approach the corner as if they were going to attack the corner. Man. And then he quickly explained to them what he was doing and they backed away. But after, you know, furiously blinking his eyes and having more water washed out, he was finally able to see. And he got in the ring and he really started going after Sonny Liston for what Liston had done to him. At the end of that round, I believe it was the sixth round, Sonny retired to his corner and he looked exhausted. He was breathing heavily, and Ali made a show of yawning. This was just, you know, very boring for him, and didn't require much effort. And then Sonny wouldn't come out for the next round. And there are three theories about what happened. It was known that he had bursitis in his left shoulder, so he claimed that the bursitis had got so bad that he couldn't lift his left arm. Then other people said that the fight was fixed, that he didn't want to be knocked out, so he thought it would be less embarrassing for him just not to come out of his corner. The third was simply that his manager said, you know, you can't fight with one arm, so we're not going to go any further. So he, in effect, lost the fight, and Ali became the uh, heavyweight championship. In their contract, there was a clause for a, uh, a rematch. But none of the big cities, none of the mayors in the big cities wanted the rematch. They didn't want Sonny Liston in their town. And the only place that would accommodate them was a small town up in uh, Maine called Lewiston. Once again, there was a lot of talk about who would win the fight. And in this fight, Liston was favored to win 8-1 to one against Ali. Now, John Vitale, one of his compatriots, come to him and say that he was going to fly up to Lewiston to see the fight. And John Vitale said, don't bother. The fight's fixed, and it'll be over very quickly. And Ash Resnick told one of his gambling partners who wanted to go to the fight in Lewiston, he said, don't bother flying up there. The fight will be over before you can get into your seat. And about a minute and 40 seconds into the first round, Sonny Liston went down in what looked like a, a punch that just seemed to graze his head that didn't seem to hit him at all. And a number of sports writers said it looked as if the punch was so light, it couldn't have been more effective if he was just trying to get rid of a fly around his head. And when Sonny Liston went down, he seemed to perform going down. He fell down, he rolled over, he rolled over to the other side, he rolled back over again, he lay there for a minute. And Ali was sent back to his corner by the referee. And when he got back to his corner, he said to his cornerman, he said, did I hit him? I don't even think I hit him. How did he go down? And his cornerman said, oh, you hit him. Don't worry. You, you hit him. And Ali never believed he hit him. Well, there was an argument amongst various sports writers, some saying that the punch never landed or just kind of swiped by Ali's head. Others said that he really was hit and he went down. However, the FBI overheard a recording made by Geraldine Liston, Sonny's wife, in which she said to Sonny, look, since the fight is fixed, go down in the first round so that you're not hurt. What's the point of getting hurt if you're going to lose the fight anyway? So just go down and you'll collect your money and that'll be that. So, you know, based on what the FBI assumed that the fight was fixed, it probably was a fixed fight. I don't think Ollie knew it was fixed. He didn't have to know. They just had to fix Sonny. And because the mob had such incredible control over Sonny, they really had their hooks very deeply into him. They could pretty much do whatever they want with him. Yeah, they might have made a bunch of bets all across the United States at different places so nobody could get the pattern on it, that he would go down within five rounds or four rounds or something like that. So he just, uh, or that he would for sure lose. Right. So it's supposedly the Vegas gambler, Ash Resnick, made a million dollars, a million dollar profit from his bets on that fight. Hmm. 
Yeah, and you know they'd have to have different sub agents go out and place those bets because if one guy started laying all that money on there, <laughs> it's a dead giveaway. <laughs> Absolutely right. I mean, that's what Arnold Rothstein did with the 1919 World Series. Yeah, he, he had about 50 or 60 people going out all over the country betting on his behalf. Interesting. Well, Jeffrey, this has been great, folks. This has been Jeffrey Sussman. I love that talk about boxing and boxing in the mob. You know, as you grew up in the 50s like I did, and a lot of my listeners did, and, and even younger people, man, we love boxing and finding out about those kind of stories behind the headlines, which you just told us a whole bunch of them. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it, and thank you for having me on. All right. Thanks a lot, Jeffrey. My pleasure. Well, folks, thank you for listening and all your nice comments on the Apple Podcast Reviews, plus your nice comments on my YouTube channel, where I often put up the uh, at least the Zoom interviews so you can see what my guests look like in real life. Also on our Facebook group, Gangland Wire Podcast. I see a lot of really good compliments on that. I've got some great people that help put up really good content, so if you want more Mob information that you can shake a stick at, go to Gangland Wire Podcast Facebook page, or actually it's a group. Remember that if you support the podcast with some donations, you'll get an invite to my live Zoom call, where we'll share stories, answer questions, and in general, have a good time. Don't forget to buy me a cup of coffee or a shot and a beer on Venmo on your Venmo app, or you can go to Gangland Wire, my website, ganglandwire.com, and donate. I have a donate page, and, and each podcast that I put up has a pretty lengthy written blog piece about what the subject is, and at the bottom of that page, there's a way to donate. I have some fixed costs, and plus I'm raising some money for my next documentary, which is about the KC mob and the election fraud of 1946. I've already had to hire a film guy to do a couple of my interviews, and I have one more interview to film. Plus, I have an artist that I pay to do some illustrations for my movie. If you remember from Brothers Against Brothers or Gangland Wire, I use some illustrations in those. And by the way, you can rent those on Amazon for only $1.99 or $2.99 if you want the HD version. And finally, I have my book, Leaving Vegas, the true story of how FBI wiretaps ended mob domination of Las Vegas casinos. Now, that title is a mouthful. But in that book, you're going to find copies of a lot of the transcripts of the actual wiretaps. And if you get the Kindle version, I took those audios that I got out of the court files and linked them to the book in the proper places. I have an explanation and then the actual audio wiretap, which I think is kind of unusual. So you can go to Amazon and get that book and get it in the Kindle version. Gangland Wire supports the Veterans Administration and their programs that help veterans with PTSD. You can call their hotline at 1-800-873-8255 and push 1. Or go to their website, www.ptsd.va.gov. I hate saying that www. I left it out when I said something about Gangland Wire. You guys all know. I can leave that out. Anyhow, thanks a lot for listening and listen up next week. I try to put out one a week. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.